Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, hello, hello. Welcome back to yet another episode of the Unsackable Podcast. I'm Adrian. I am the host, or at least I'm the starting host. You know, we kind of have a fluid approach to things when it's just Filippo, Josh, and myself. And speaking of which, Josh, how are you? How are you doing? Great to have you back once again, man. Yeah, I'm doing good. Missed you guys last week. I hope uh, Filippo behaved himself. More than likely, he didn't. He's the uh, he's the rascal in our in our group. But uh, there's a lot I to talk about. Did. You did? You bayhead yourself a little bit? Maybe they'll put you on a on a firm, uh, firm plan there? No, not really. I just chose to. Okay, good. All right. Well, he's changing. He's growing. The Canadian is rubbing off on him. But yeah, no, I'm excited. There's a lot to talk about. Uh, I'm, ex- I'm, ex- I'm excited for one point specifically. It's Adrian's final point, I believe, how we're going to do it. But I, uh, I'm going to wait till that gets to there. Yes, good. We, we put a little teaser in at the beginning of the episode just to make sure people stay. Don't skip ahead. Plenty of surprises throughout, but Filippo, last week you woke up and you chose obedience, apparently. Today, you wake up and you choose. I'm, I'm going to be very nice again. I'm going to be very nice. Unlike Canada, right? Canada didn't yeah. really behave in Honduras. You guys, they're trying to destroy locker rooms, you know, just just classic rude behavior from the Canadians. But understandable at the same time. It's just that the United States went through something similar yesterday against El Salvador, but we, we chose to behave after a game. We, we had a good time on the mud. That's what we did. We had yeah. a good time on the mud. Now, now I'm going to make a quick point, and I, I want to get your guys' opinion on this because like, I was trying to, to bite my tongue out a little bit throughout it because I don't want to condone what the Canadians did. They're very frustrating, uh, clearly, like the, the pitch, the performance, everything in between, and then the reaction after. But I don't know. It just didn't, it didn't hit me the same way. Now, I don't know if it's just because like I, I played hockey growing up. But I mean, like that to me seems like a norm. I don't know how many games I've lost over the years where you come off and players are breaking sticks. It doesn't matter what stadium they're in. They're not damaging Sid. And I don't think punching a door is doing that, but the amount of times I've seen players come out of off the ice and they would smash their stick over something. They'd punch change rooms. Yes. It's, it's a bit of an unsportsmanlike looking uh, approach, but I mean, Canadians cannot be the amount of DMS I was getting being like, Josh, like how are you condoning this? I'm like, I'm not condoning this. I don't know what was said to provoke the players, but they lost, just lost a game. And I've seen plenty of Canadians. Doesn't matter the sport. Well, act in similar way. So I just want to throw that and get your guys' but Josh, opinion. Breaking your own stick is one thing, but trying to destroy property of someone else, right? The stadium's not theirs. When, since yeah. when do you kick through a metal door? Like, where do you think you're you're putting your foot through a door? I've well, seen- I mean, I mean, the intention was, I don't know if they knew it was a metal door. The intention was to definitely cause damage. Uh, it was something to hit. I, I've seen, we've seen this in the past too in NBA, right? Some players leave and they punch something. Uh, I forgot who it was, even broke his hand once doing yeah. that. Uh, regardless, it just looks silly for a grown man to act that way. It does, but the, uh, that was the only point. I'm not, and again, I'm not condoning it. I think it made the Canadians look very unprofessional and it gave reasons to a lot of social media to poke at them. The only point is, like, especially from a Canadian perspective, and maybe just these Canadians don't watch other sports. I, I don't know, but I mean, I guarantee you, go, go watch a hockey game, for just an example. Watch any player who gets maybe a, kicked out of the game. They're breaking shit. They're, they're throwing crap. They're, they're punching and kicking metal doors, which they're not going to damage. I just thought, yes, and it's unprofessional. Look, I just thought it was very interesting to see, like, just, the, I guess, the perception in sport and how it alters. Regardless, again, I'm not condoning what Canada did. It made them look like like, like babies, but I, we don't know the context. And I just thought they were over-exaggerating a frustrated professional athlete coming off and, yeah, and abusing the door. 
the the main thing with it overall is it, it just it was just a reflection of what Canada was at one point in the game. You could see Canada was frustrated with the ref, the field conditions. Yeah. Which, to be quite honest, I I do understand their frustration. It was it was painful to watch, but at the same time, you 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 can't let that get to your head. And Canada did, because I do think a lot of the Canadian players don't have enough experience in the region and maybe don't understand that. And that's a right. good point. And that's a good. Uh, the United good States, point. the United States faced similar conditions yesterday. Uh, I do think the Canadian ref was worse, the ref for the Can- Canada game, and the field was worse for Canada due to the puddles. Right. Besides the puddles, both fields were horrendous, but but the United States just kind of like embraced it at the same time. They just tried to fight it off, had fun in the mud, try to do. While Canada let that get to their heads, and there's a reason why the United States was able to pull a draw, and, and Canada was just lost the game. And I think what Canada has to learn from this is that, unfortunately, them liking it or not, Concacaf is that way. Yeah, and they, Canada's more than capable of winning these games as long as they winning or at least drawing, pulling a result, as long as they don't let the opponent get to their head, and they allow that to happen, and they showed that frustration after the game. Yeah, that was I, the main issue. You, 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 you honestly, you made. Great points, and I 100% agree because you could tell that they were frustrated from the very off. I've watched you stack, you lose the ball in the water three, four times, and he almost gave one of those those shrugs, being like, "Are you kidding me? Like, what are we playing in?" Like, they got Concacaf, and and I and I don't condone their performance. I, they, I think that's a mentality check for them going forward because these are the conditions that you're going to be forced with if you're playing in this region. I just thought it was super, super surprising, and maybe maybe I don't want to get Adrian's opinions, but I just thought it was super, super, super surprising the amount of criticism that they receive just specifically for for punching a door because i've seen that in many different sports all over the place they didn't break anything they didn't do anything like that i just thought it was a little surprising again i said it 15 times i'm not condoning it i just thought like this is what athletes do man try playing at the highest level i played at a relatively high level and you, i get kicked out of game i lose a match i think i'm now a hockey six i've broken over the years maybe i'm just a spaz i, I don't know agent what, what do you think <laughs> well there's two things that i want to add in here is one of them is that I think that the way that it was sort of portrayed in the media, there was a lot of misinformation out there that they were banging on the referee's door where, you know, looking back at the footage, you can clearly see. Hey, 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 you calling me out or something? No, I'm not calling you out. There's a certain Twitter account. There's a certain Twitter account that was spreading some misinfo there. It wasn't you. It wasn't you. Um, But you can clearly see that they're coming straight off the pitch. They have that sort of covered tunnel that the players walk through to protect them from the supporters. And then there was, it was almost looked like there was a, you know, some sort of like stanchion or something that, just sort of blocks the hallway from the stands where the supporters are. Now, first of all, the way it was portrayed in the media was that they were banging on the referee's door, which of course is a really spicy story. Really, you know, that would be a really fun storyline for everyone else because of how poor the officiating was in Canada, you know, has a right to feel aggrieved, but you can never condone banging or threatening on the referees or something like that. So that was the first thing that sort of made Canada look bad was the misinformation about them banging on the referee's door. That wasn't the case. The second thing is that there's a huge context gap because we saw Canada frustrated on the pitch. We saw how the match ended with a flurry of cards, reds, yellows, you name it. And then uh, the Canadian players come off of the pitch. And then we jump to this tunnel cam footage and you see them banging on the walls. And we don't know what happened between when they were on the pitch versus getting into that tunnel and what the fans were saying to them, because that sort of emotional reaction from a lot of the players to me Yes, of course, it could have been just anger at the match and how it went and the conditions and the officiating and you know the right to feel aggrieved by everything that happened during the match. But I think that there is a lot of context missing from when they went off the pitch directly into the tunnel and what was said between them and the supporters. Because the way that they reacted to bang against the supporters' wall or whatever that was that they were banging against, to me, it just looked like, you know, it looked like just frustration with something that happened between the supporters. So I think it's a little bit overblown. Maybe it'll become more clear. In fact, Josh, did you hear anything about what exactly the cause was? Was there any mention of that amongst the sort of Canadian men's national team Twitter at all? Uh, the only thing, and that's what, again, and you, you summed it up very well, Adrian. The only thing I really heard, and I don't want to put this out there and as it's the truth, because I still don't have specifics, but it's it's basically like the fans were taking a run at the players. And I'm not going to put... I'm not going to put misinformation out there, but if you're looking at the type of reaction and you're expecting verbal abuse coming from the fans, I mean, you can probably put two and two together. Something probably provoked the players and, and they seem very frustrated. And then that might even change the context. I didn't want to go out there and, and say like, hey, this is why they reacted like this, but something clearly had to be done. Or maybe I'm wrong. And maybe it was just, they were just getting a little riff from the fans and they were just frustrated from the entire swimming pool event that they just did. I don't know 100% know, but all I 
all from what I understand is that the fans were taking a, a shot at them on the way out and that clearly frustrated Atacubi and some of the other players. Yeah, absolutely. And for anyone who didn't actually see the match, this was basically Canada and Honduras playing water polo. It was that bad. It was basically a flooded pitch. But what made it worse was that it was a cut-up pitch that was then flooded. So not only did you have bumps, but you had the ball getting caught in the water. Players were dribbling with the ball at their feet, and suddenly the ball would be behind them, and they wouldn't know what happened. There's just water splashing everywhere. So it was really terrible conditions. But that's just, you know, that's sort of the reality of playing in Central America at this time of year, right? I mean, it, we saw it with the U.S. as well, right, Filippo? That was... I mean, that was like basically a pigsty what they were playing. It was just yeah, blood yeah. everywhere. You see, the, the thing with me is, and Americans even get pissed off at me because I don't buy into the, the BS of like, it's CONCACAF, it's a way in CONCACAF, it's tough. Because I've grown up watching overly technical Brazilian and Argentinian teams going and playing in far worse conditions than CONCACAF and far more aggressive and just getting the result done or suffering the consequences of it of media and fans coming after them. Right. So there, I never really understood the excuse of it's away. Canada, United States. And, and honestly, I don't see Mexico whining about it. They deal with the same conditions. They just go play. And if they get it done, they get it done. If they don't, they don't whine about it. The U.S. and Mexico have this habit. And it might be a little bit because we might be a little spoiled. Right. With what, where we live and, and everything is complained about. I'm not saying these conditions should be where we play because the game becomes just complete crap to watch also. But I'm just saying that they need to start growing up, Americans and Canadian teams, stop talking about the field, go there, get the job done, beat the team. Get the job done. You're better teams. Canada's a better team than Honduras. United States is a better team than El Salvador. We need to st- cut the crap with it. I understand that you can't win every single game away and there's adversity to it, but it, it just has to stop at this point. This frustration, right? Canada came into the game before anything happened frustrated Tejon Buchanan had a frustrated face coming into the field okay so it it just has to stop and and what I'm saying to Canada I'll say the same for the United States too and I said that in the live stream yesterday and I did see some improvements from the United States in terms of the mentality but it's still there we need to cut the crap with this away CONCACAF thing that Canadians and Americans are kind of like falling for at this point i mean it's not a hundred percent like a way in Concacaf. i mean we we went down to honduras not that long ago we won two nothing i had absolutely no issues with with anything no but it, but this, but was, a, gosh, this was even a- the u.s won in world cup qualifying everyone beat honduras away but but i'm just saying that this this narrative that it's tough away in Concacaf. yes it's tough away anywhere just cut the crap and go for the win we know it's going to be tougher but they keep repeating it so much that i think the player already arrives thinking the conditions will be bad everything's going to be worse well and, I, I mean i don't know i can't speak for the players but i can speak for myself the players went down there and won pretty hand, handily last time i thought they were going to go down there and win again i took a look at that pitch you can't tell me that those you're saying brazil and argentina is playing far worse conditions there's no worse condition you can't play the game properly maybe you're talking about the altitude of, of bolivia or something like that no go but, play in the libertadores the fields are equally as bad, and when it rains, it pours in South America, especially near the rainforest. The conditions are terrible. Honestly, even in the Brazilian league sometimes, in the Copa do Brasil in Brazil, you play some teams in the the, the, the insides of Brazil, right, that go towards like more central of Brazil, and, and the conditions are as bad. They're, they're like high school stadiums uh, with horrible fields with, with not even like – the problem's not even mud. There's like holes in the field that you can actually get injured. Um, you go to like other countries that you play, Peru, Venezuela, Colombia, the fields aren't good in a lot of these teams you face. It's the obvious. And, and then you go also to play in La Bombonera. It's a hostile environment, right? The field's not the problem, but there's there's fans also like in your hotel with fireworks. That they be, it's... Yeah, Look, I mean, it's, it's it's worse in South America. That's what I'm saying. It's yeah, worse. We'll we'll we'll, we'll wrap we'll wrap it up because like I don't want to go on it. But like, I, and again, I'm not overly familiar watching all those different stadiums you mentioned throughout South America. I'm not going to pretend that I am. I've watched most of the Canadian national team matches in my entire life, which probably spans about 15 ish years now. Like when I started watching, I've never seen something quite like what I watched last night, just in terms of actually being able to play the game. Like our pitch was atrocious it was just damn near unplayable however there is one big takeaway for you kind of put on it it's it's a mentality check for these guys this they like you said they were frustrated from the beginning i thought victoria was gonna get a red early in that first half the players looked livid they didn't like the conditions they probably it's almost like they felt they were 
they're unsafe and they didn't, they shouldn't be here. Like this is this isn't fair. This is this is un- like I don't know. So like there was a whole bunch of frustration that led throughout the match, but my eyes were burning trying to because that just wasn't a game of of soccer. But whatever, the players will have to learn from it. They'll have to find a mental block to go forward because they're going to have to do this again. Yeah, this it's is, not the first, not the last. You know, we know not that. the first, not the last. So yeah, it's got to be a huge takeaway for them to try to to just put it aside because yeah I, I agree they didn't go in there with the right mentality and because of that the frustrations boiled out and had some ugly scenes after the match just before we move on just remember one thing i do understand that shitty field conditions do affect more the technical team but the field is crap for both sides right it doesn't magically get better when honduras or el salvador are in possession and i do understand that definitely affects the u.s and canada they have more technical players and that kind of like puts the level down but it's bad for both sides. But let's move on. We're, we're in this topic for too long. Yeah, ultimately, it's bad for both sides. It's okay to acknowledge that the field conditions are poor, but to, you know, to pin a loss or a bad result on field conditions like that is just, it comes off as a little bit weak. But a quick question about the Nations League matches that we did watch, guys. With the matches and sort of the state of the pitches, you know, for both the U.S. and for Canada, I'll start with you, Filippo. Was there anything that you could really take away from that last match last night? Or was it just sort of a wash and you get what you get because of the conditions were so poor? For the United States specifically? Yes, exactly. For the States. Yeah. You don't really take much out of it in terms of level of ability of the players. But I did take that the mentality of a lot of the young Americans has improved. There was grit. There was fight. Like Pulisic had... An average to bad game, Christian Pulisic, that you expect more from him. But I really enjoyed seeing the fight in him, willing to go for tackles, get hit, fight for the team. He fought the whole freaking game. So that grit is something you want to see, especially in games under these conditions, right, where you just try to get the result because it's such a bad situation. Eunice Musa um, stepping up to 19-year-old, playing away right there in bad conditions, didn't care. He was so, incredible. That was that yeah. had to have been his best performance yet for the U.S. Men's National Team. Most ever. likely. If he had that finishing right and got that goal from that play that he had, oh, my goodness. But, but yeah, it, it was good to see that, that grit, the fight. Um, the team continued to believe they could tie the game till the end. We had a PK for us that the ref didn't call, which, honestly, it was a blatant PK. Jordan Morris heads the ball in the Salvadorian's hand, and it was a PK. The fact that our team didn't get frustrated by that, we continued to press and try to get the goal, that was enjoyed. The, and so I, I'll say this, out of the mentality, I took a lot of positives. In terms of the game itself, overall ability, level of play, it's very hard to judge anyone under those conditions, right? It was hard. It was even harder in the Canadian game, but the, the, the American game against um, El Salvador was also a horrible field. Yeah, Christian Pulisic gets that uh, that UFC fighter haircut, and he's a he's a whole new gritty man. But Josh, as far as the Canadian men's national team, what can you take away from that match against Honduras? Because it was obviously a disaster as far as you know the pitch. Some of the officiating was disastrous, of course, as well. Um, really difficult to play. What do you take from that match? I mean, honestly, like depending on how the the Canadians were going to approach it, if they would have went there and just played in these type of conditions and would have just had the right mentality i would have took nothing away because i i truthfully believe this is not how the game should be played however you like Filippo made a good point twitter made a good point and it's something that i mean everyone can notice they were unimpressed from the very beginning it's all it's almost like being an athlete and being told like hey like you want to play forward well guess what you're playing this this game at defense you know and then if you don't have the right mentality you just look angry while doing it that's kind of how the canadians looked and I know and I've complained about it a lot and that's why like it's almost a wash but having that mentality like I was calling out for Steve Vittoria to almost honestly get taken off at the 20th minute because it looked like he was going to throw a bow and and just knock somebody out the players couldn't handle it mentally I don't know why I feel like this is such a tight group I feel like they do have good (laughs) good mentality I just don't know what it was about this specific match maybe they just felt like hey we're going to a world cup you know like we we don't want to risk and energy this is atrocious field i don't know what it was that led up to 90 straight minutes of pure frustration from every player i mean losing the ball obviously and and then going down having chances the referee didn't help like it was just yeah it came in angry you couldn't handle the pressure it came towards you at towards the end and then like the fireworks went off the fans the the locker room kicking the the arguments with the players like yeah it was just a disaster there's nothing positive to really take away from this match and i almost wouldn't have taken anything away if they didn't go in with that type of mentality. So it's it's a learning experience, and this group 
if they're going to play in this region and they want to play at the highest level in this region, are going to have to go through experiences like this. And they just really let themselves down a little bit. But yeah, I don't know. It, it was a it was a tough night all, all in all. I agree with you. And I think that one last thing just to leave us off here is in regard to Canada, at least, is this didn't really happen in a vacuum. Canada has had a very strange window, cancellations of friendlies, you know, the sort of disparity between the Canadian Soccer Association and the players and the sort of standoff that's going on there. So there's this isn't happening in a vacuum. There are a whole bunch of sort of contributing factors. But speaking of CONCACAF guys, there's going to be four CONCACAF teams at the World Cup, four from CONCACAF, four from CONMEBOL. CONCACAF is just as good as South America, right, Philippe Paul? Um, no, but <laughs> uh, the, the the difference is South America has two World Cup contenders and, and another team, Uruguay, that is a possible dark horse to make a quarter semifinal run. As in CONCACAF, if we get one na nation to the quarterfinals, I, I think it would be fantastic. And I hope we do get one. It's going to be tough, but I hope we get one. Uh, it's definitely not the same. Ball, the, the thing with Ball is Ball only has 10 nations. So you can't really give them much more spots than they already have, right? They already have four direct spots and one inter-confederate playoffs. So with that said, I, I think it's fair that CONCACAF has many more nations. I know many of them are small nations. It doesn't matter. We have, what, like 40 nations in, in CONCACAF, 41, while Commonwealth has only 10. Uh, congratulations to Costa Rica. I was cheering for them. It wasn't pretty. They were literally one world-class goalkeeper away from not qualifying to the World Cup. Kaylor Navas had to carry them through. And they managed to get New Zealand out of the way. New Zealand played very well, by the way. Surprised me. I actually thought Costa Rica was going to be the better side. And then Peru did not really play very well, right? I do do say this, though. Peru wasn't supposed to be there, if we're being completely honest, right? They're not the fifth best South American nation right there. They are very well coached by Gareca. And they managed to make to overachieve once again, just as they did in the last World Cup. The last World Cup, they actually went to the World Cup. It should have been Colombia in terms of talent and actually having. And Colombia probably would have beat Australia. But they had coaching problems throughout their campaign with Carlos Queiroz, the former Iran coach. And then had to change coaches. And, and just things just didn't click for Colombia. But Colombia should have been the one there. And then Comenval probably would have had five nations. But... Qualifiers in common ball is very confusing, very tough. And yeah, it is what it is. Now we have Australia and Costa Rica in the World Cup. Wales also qualified, I believe, a week ago. So we have all the teams now. I think for a brief moment, when we look at the Redmayne power rankings, you know, Eddie Redmayne has had that top spot for a long time, very famous actor. But Andrew Redmayne of Australia, Josh, that was the spaghetti legs and arms. That was like, that really reminded me of Jersey Dudek in that Liverpool versus AC Milan shootout in the Champions League final from back in the day. How about you? What do you think of that? I mean, <laughs> I don't I, I don't know. That was uh that was something else to have uh to have the the cojones to come on when cuz I don't like when a keeper's substituted in the 120th minute. I never have. I think sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. We've seen the highest of the highs and the most crazy moments in the World Cup with Tim Krul. Then we've seen Kepa making an absolute fool of himself coming on. It just I feel like it adds pressure to a keeper i feel like when you're the keeper you don't have pressure if you play the game like the pressure is on the players but when you then substitute you out to put in a specific specialist then that adds unnecessary pressure to an already very intense situation this is a spot at the world cup so when they do it in the 120th minute bring on this guy over matt ryan who's a pretty well-known name too so i didn't i've never heard of redmond before to be honest and then he comes in there and almost makes a fool of himself because i was sitting there pissing myself laughing like what is this guy doing this big framed wiggly guy breaking it down. I was just, I was having a heyday. Like it, it almost to me looked unprofessional. And I was like, I, I didn't overly like it at first, but then I was like, you know what? This is the, this is again, this is a spot at the world cup. You want to do whatever it takes to get there. You want to dance and look like a fool, do it. And I mean, it obviously, I mean, I think the one hit the post, but he made the the save <laughs> and the celebration after was, was simply incredible. So interesting moment uh i'm kind of torn on, on my feelings about it but hey whatever works you're going to world cup they are indeed going to the world cup and so just to give you guys a refresher australia thank you to the wiggly man in goal will be going up against france denmark and tunisia in group d 
Um, and then we also have Costa Rica. They'll be in Group E alongside Spain, Germany, Japan. That's going to be difficult. And then, of course, Wales, they sort of booked their place a little bit earlier in this window. They'll be in the same group as England, Iran, and the United States. Guys, out of the three teams that have been confirmed, the final three, which one do you see as having a chance to get out of their group? Because for me, Wales is a pretty decent tournament team. I think of those three, just by process of elimination, I think that Wales would have the best shot to maybe sneak out in uh, in second place. But what do you guys think? Philippo, let's start with you. So it's tough to say right now. Let, let, let me put it this way for you, Adrian. I'm going to want you to give me a quick response here. Let's say Bale's not available. Does that change completely your yep. opinion? So, so So that's a big if right there, right? If Bale's in very bad form or if Bale is just injured, Wales is pretty much put as the fourth seed of this group. They're relying on one player. As for the United States, Iran, and England, one player missing is not going to be the make it or break it, right? Even though Iran, if they're missing Taremi, that will probably hurt them quite a bit, right? Asmun or Taremi up top. Look, it it's a group that's quite fascinating because despite the other teams being far weaker than England, the way England has been playing and with the abysmal coaching they have and some issues, not just tactically in the team, but in terms of individual personnel as well, England could be an upset on this group and finish second or third. I, I still have England in my prediction topping the group just because of the quality they have in depth. But, I mean, Southgate is horrible. And there's many issues in terms of individual players along with his tactics of having to put two sixes ahead of the back line because he doesn't trust the back line, essentially. And then Mason Mount becomes the 10 and the team can't create through the middle. Um, and other issues, too. I'm not playing Tamori enough, but that that's just off top. I'm going to still stick with England first, United States second. I have Iran in third, and I have Wales actually in last. I don't think Wales is a championship team essentially with um with Garrett Bale and then a couple other guys like like Dan James is not very good. Um, Aaron Ramsey is a little bit old at this point playing in Scotland. It's pretty much Bale and a championship side team. So they to me they're the weakest side. It's Bale and the Welsh Messi, Daniel James, man. Josh, what do you think? Are Wales going to make it out? And also, Filippo, you you never answered. Do you think that, I mean, this could be really quick. Australia and Costa Rica, do you give them any chance of getting out of their groups? Pretty tough. Pretty tough. Very unlikely. Very unlikely. Maybe Australia if Denmark really fails. But Denmark is, I think they're my dark horse pick, man. Nah, look, I, I can't see them going through. Um, Costa Rica is just not looking that good right now. They're trying to mix up some of their youth with the veterans. And we saw it against Australia. that They're heavily reliant on Keylor Navas just like saving their asses. In Australia, I think they're not going to have enough quality to go through a group with um, Denmark and France. Yeah, I mean, neither. How about you, Josh? What do you think of the new arrivals? Do any of them have a chance of getting out of their respective groups? I mean, for me, this is this is super, super simple. Like when you're telling me, tell me to rank them, I mean... Costa Rica, I'm sorry. I'm excited that you're here, but that performance against New Zealand was atrocious. You're not there. I mean, you got the job done, and hey, you did the same type of uh, game plan against Canada and got the job done. But I think Germany and, and, and Spain are just going to pick them apart. They don't look very good. I would be surprised if they got, honestly, any points, maybe a draw against Japan. So I'm saying almost zero chance for them. Hope, hopefully, they, they prove me wrong for some CONCACAF love. Australia, I'd give a little bit higher of a chance because I'm going to, you know, the, the curse. I mean, France are doing very, very poor right now against uh, in their Nations League. But in, in, in all honesty, I mean, I'd honestly see Denmark topping that group, then France. And then I think Australia has an okay shot against Tunisia, but more than likely not. The Wales one is wide open. I see Iran, Wales, and the U.S. all very, very even. And then England is playing like quite quite literally like crap so i think that group is a wide open uh i don't think wales is is any worse or better than the u.s and iran i think those three teams are very very even so i think there's a very good shot and there's a very likelihood honestly that that wales could uh but bail or not i still think wales could probably go toe-to-toe with like the u.s and and iran so i think that group is absolutely wide open so yeah that was how i would uh i'd put it together yeah i can't remember who said it and i'm not going to take credit for this because it was not my uh, sort of uh, speculation, but someone said that in that group in particular, what is it, Group B? Yeah, Group B, England, Iran, United States, and Wales. 
whoever can take a point off of England, whoever can grab that draw, I think is the one that's going to end up going through. Um, and I agree with that take. I, again, can't remember who said it. Sorry to whoever said that, but I agree with your take, whoever you were. Are you ready for the NBA champs to be crowned? Join the finals action with DraftKings Sportsbook, an official sports betting partner of the NBA. New customers can make any $5 NBA bet and get $150 in free bets instantly. Looking to turn another small bet into a big payday during the NBA Finals? With a DraftKings Same Game Parlay, you can do just that. This NBA season, a customer placed a $5 NBA Parlay and won over $5,000. Create your own parlay by combining multiple bets like which team will win, total threes made, total rebounds, and more, and boom, you have a shot at an even bigger payout. Download the DraftKings Sportsbook app now. Use promo code TBPN. Make any $5 bet during the NBA Finals and get $150 in free bets instantly. That's promo code TBPN. Only at DraftKings Sportsbook, an official sports betting partner of the NBA. Minimum age and eligibility restrictions apply. See show notes for details. Now, I, I wanted to maybe mention the UEFA Nations League a little bit here, Josh. Did you, did you happen to take in any of the UEFA Nations League. I know that Filippo wanted to speak about France, so we'll get to that in a sec. But did you take in any of it? I did. There, man, there's this window was wild. There were so many European fixtures. I didn't quite realize it just because you know the usual fixtures you get like three matches, but I believe like didn't teams like play like almost four or five different games? Yeah, a lot of teams uh, played four matches. Four matches. Yeah, like the 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 group for me personally, I I kept an eye on was the Italy, England, Germany one, and Hungary one where. England is bottom of that one, and there's a massive five-two game yesterday, which was an entertaining one against a very young Italian side for Germany, and and then four nothing loss for England at home against Hungary. So those are the two big ones that kind of caught my eye. But I mostly watched the uh, the Germany one. How about you, Philip? Because I know speaking before the podcast, sorry, excuse my my stumble there. Um, you were saying that you have some thoughts about France because they are indeed struggling. I believe they only have is it two points from their opening matches so far um i can check here real quick but just one thing in that group still england is technically getting relegated in nations league right now and germany looked pretty good against italy but france right now in four games has two draws and one loss so they have two points in a group of austria croatia and denmark so my theories on france is a couple things one is ego issues among players, right? We know Paul Pogba has an, a big ego. A few other players too. Mbappe's ego seem to, seems to have inflated along with his bank account lately. Um, but I also think there could be some coaching fatigue, right? And I don't know, Adrian, help me pronounce Deschamps. Is that I say it right? Deschamps. Yeah, and I agree Deschamps. with you on the coaching fatigue as well. Yeah, it's sometimes teams need new ideas, Right, the talent is still there. No one can freaking question that. It, honestly, they even have more talent than 2018. If I'm being completely honest, the team is they probably could make, they could probably make two very uh, decent World Cup contending teams with the two world two yeah. World Cup contending teams better than England. <laughs> yeah, um, there you go. But but again, it's coaching fatigue. I think is the main issue, along with some egos too. Right, Mbappe's ego is definitely bigger than it was in 20. Um, 2018, when he was kind of starting his career, uh, we even saw him. Remember, he kind of quit on the French national. He didn't know if he wanted to play anymore. Um, and not just that, and that affects the whole locker room and everything, the way players act. But there's coaching fatigue. Sometimes teams need new ideas, and we saw that with Germany under Joachim Le. Now they added Hansi Flick. They're looking much better. Sometimes that's what you need, and and I don't think France is going to deal with the Champions Curse. I think they're going to go through the group stage in the World Cup. But despite the heavy talent they have, I think they're not going to win this World Cup. Um, they have too many problems to deal with right now. But then they're going to switch coaches probably after this World Cup. And they are already one of my contenders for 2026 already. <laughs> yeah, they're difficult to look fast because, like you said, they just have so much depth. They've been like the absolute hotbed of talent lately, haven't they? They just continue to roll out all these stunning, stunning players in every single position. And what you were saying about Deschamps, I think that's sort of been mused about for a while now because Euro 2020 was pretty underwhelming. Um, I believe they won the Nations League last time, but prior to that, they were a bit underwhelming in the Nations League, the previous edition. So things certainly are pointing towards a bit of a decline from France as far as performances go, but we'll see how they perform in this big 2022 tournament. 
Are there any other words on the UEFA Nations League, guys? Anything else that you want to say? Uh, there's just one quick comment, and that's not even on League A. I was, I was following a little bit of League B, right? The second division, because England will probably be there next season. Uh, but I was just seeing Norway, right? Defeat Serbia with Holland scoring and topping the group for now. And it just made me a little upset that we're not going to get Martin Odegaard and Holland in the World Cup. And they defeated Serbia, which is one of my dark horses here. So Norway, watching them play well and everything was a disappointment of not having them in the World Cup. Besides that, I have nothing else to talk about there. Yeah, that is a shame when you are missing such big players like that. I mean, that's something that we saw with, you know, he's a bit of a uh, tainted name nowadays, but Ryan Giggs back in the day, such a brilliant player, but he played for Wales and a Welsh team that wasn't really doing much at the international level. So we barely got to see him play at that level. And hopefully... I mean, signs are pointing that it won't be the same for Holland as he has quite the supporting cast around them. It seems like Norway are developing players quite nicely nowadays. So hopefully we will get to see him at a major tournament. But guys, we spoke a lot about France and this is uh, this is the part of the podcast that I've been looking forward to a lot because I've been reading up on PSG and we all know how they've been sort of running that club recently or in the last decade or so since Qatari Sports Investments took over is very much short-term solutions and glamour signings that they go for. Yes, there's some other very good signings mixed in along the way, of course. We're not saying that all of their signings have sucked, but in general, the way that they run that club is for short-term success. Now, it looks like Leonardo is leaving. That guy, poor guy, has quite a poor track record at this point. But it looks like Leonardo is leaving, and instead they have an advisor in Luis Campos. And Luis Campos is a Portuguese scout slash, you know, sporting director kind of guy, sort of, I guess, similar in a sense. And this is sort of a, a lazy connection to draw, but similar in a sense, just to sort of articulate it for some of you who are familiar with him, to a Ralph Ragnick type character, except he's more a masterful scout um, and advisor for a lot of clubs. This Luis Capel's guy. And he actually started as a manager, but he failed as a manager in Portugal. In fact, Filippo, he was called, uh, and I say Filippo because it's Portuguese, he was called Luis Campas in Portugal because he managed to get three teams relegated in about a two-year span. Two teams in one season, which is quite the feat, and then another one two years later. So impressive. Camp- yes, yeah, very impressive. So impressive. <laughs> deserving of the Campas title. So, Oh, just one thing, Adrian. You spoke of Portuguese. Remind us to close this episode with a funny story about Paulo Sosa. Um, I will. Yes. Yes. I will. You need to Very get to that. But yeah, finish up what you're talking. So Luis Campos, you will maybe hear about him because he is sort of the master of getting these players, these sort of unfancy players at very cheap prices and building them up to be great. So the first sort of masterpiece that he had was AS Monaco, that 2016-17 AS Monaco side. He joined AS Monaco and he started buying players like Bernardo Silva. He brought in Fabinho. He brought in Thomas Lamar for $4 million. All these sort of players, Bakayoko, etc. He built up that team. He also brought Mbappe to AS Monaco. So he built up that AS Monaco team that managed to knock PSG off their perch. He leaves AS Monaco. He goes to Lille. He does the exact same thing there, bringing in all these great free transfers, very, very cheap signings like Kikone, Bamba, all these sorts of players. And what happens? Once again, Lille are the champions in 2021. So the two times that PSG have failed to win the league since they started racking them up and collecting titles back in 2013 has been because of these Luis Campos constructed teams. So with Mbappe signing that extension at PSG, apparently one of his stipulations was that he wants Luis Campos to join PSG. And this is where I want to bring you guys into this because this is a guy who is known for assembling teams on the cheap. For example, he had one transfer window where he spent 8.9 million euros. That's it. At Lille, and he brought in guys like Jose Font, Bamba, Ekone, some of the guys I already mentioned, Rafael Leon for free, just great signings like that. So you take this sort of approach to football, let's call it, for lack of a better term, money ball approach. It's not the exact same, but it's similar. And then you pair this guy with a club like PSG, who just spends so freely, has had a poor sort of recruitment strategy lately. How do you guys see that? Do you see this as a turning point for PSG? Or do you think that Nasser or the rest of them will just simply not really listen to Luis Campos and all of his all of his recommendations in the transfer market? I'm going to be quick and give this to Josh. Uh, it's, it's really a wait and see. 
right? Clearly he does, He like you mentioned some examples, he's clearly capable of recruiting properly. Just a matter of now with all the money resources, is he still going to be as effective on it? He should be. He should be. I do think PSG lacks a culture, right? It's not really a money problem or quality problem. It's just a club with no culture inside, right? There's no winning culture there and things just always go south and ego problems. I think PSG's main issue is not even signings, right? Right now they have to clean up the house. There's a lot of players that are issues in that club and we'll see how he'll do to address that. Leonardo probably wasn't the guy for it, but I'll give it to Josh. It's a topic that I haven't been heavily invested in. Yeah, I mean, for for me, I, I, I agree with the Filippo. I think strategic recruitment is is needed at PSG, considering like the money. I mean, the rumors of re-signing Mbappe could lead to huge financial implications, and just make sure like they have their you know their their bills in order, making sure that they can run a, a club properly. But I think those strategic signings are going to be something that he can bring out. And also, I like his point about cleaning house. I think I just listened or read something about Ilcardi doing an interview talking about how this is going to be his big year at PSG, and if he actually thinks that. He has lost the plot because he needs to go. I'm assuming, looking honestly, like, I mean, they are probably desperate to get rid of Neymar. I think that's a little unfair, but regardless, I think there's a lot of, there's too many egos in that room. And I think that they need to do a really good job at shifting players out. There's zero reason you need Donnarumma and Kaylor Navis. Get rid of one of them. Just pick one, get rid of one of them. Get rid of Ocardi. Maybe if you can flip Neymar, which is very unlikely. But you need to get these big egos out of the change room. And then you need to bring in players who want to be in here. And I look at a player like Nkunku, for example. He's a PSG born and bred player. There are a ton of them out there. The academy that they produce players is absolutely off the charts. He wants to come back. He may, They may not get him this year, but why not bring back a Paris born and bred player, someone that's talented as him, to come in. And you're not going to see that ego because Nkunku, just to, one, to me, doesn't seem that type of player. But he's going to come in here. He's going to play for the club that he wants to play for. And it's doing little things like that to try to change the culture shift in this PSG so it's not the most toxic club in the world, which to me right now, it probably looks like that. There's there's almost no manager. And, and also a big one for me is getting in Zinedine Zidane. And, and I think we've talked about this quite a bit. I don't think there's any other manager out there available that could turn the ship like Zidane does. He's used to working with massive players and getting the best out of these players at Madrid. You saw Pochettino, you've seen Tuchel, you've seen so many different managers fall so short. I think there's a bunch of different things. This is a good step, but hopefully maybe you'll have some input on trying to get the right manager in as well as some players. Yeah, I think that bringing up Zidane is a great point because he is someone that has been amused. Him and actually Galtier because, you know, obviously Luis Campos is uh, a very good relationship with Christophe Galtier. He's the guy that he brought in at Lille to help them go from 17th all the way up to second and then eventually winning the league. But yeah, I think that the recruitment at PSG is interesting and you know, you mentioned the academy, and that's another really big thing, actually, because there's Coman, there's Nkunku, there's Ikone, there's Dembele, there's Ferland Mendy, there's all these different players that ended up leaving. And that's sort of been a trend at PSG under Qatari Sports Investment is that they don't really give their very good academy products a shot, really, or at least until it's too late and their heads have been turned and they want to go elsewhere to get another opportunity. So I'm interested to see if some of these signings that Luis Campos makes, if they are sort of younger players, if they are less fancied players, because I think there will be a mix, I think they'll still draw in the big players. Will the manager, whoever that may be, be willing to actually utilize them as much as the big stars that they have? That's going to be fascinating to me. Um, I'm really looking forward to seeing how it all sort of plays out in that regard, because there's, I mean, they have all the makings to be a very, very dominant club if Luis Campos can get this right. But um, yeah, that's something that I have on the horizon that I just cannot wait to see how it all plays out. How about you, Josh? Uh, yeah, and so I just, I was saving this for, I don't know, I'm not sure what, it's just a little bit of information I have in my mind, but I thought this is the perfect way to lay it out. So I'm going to ask you guys a, a quick question in it. It's a little, not really off topic, but I was, we were talking about, you know, the, the Academy of PSG. I'm going to very quickly build you guys a starting 11 of former PSG Academy players. Like I think I can do it right off the top of my head. And just say yes or no if you guys still think if PSG had this team instead of the mega superstar team that they had, if you think that they would win the uh, the league on title as well. Yes. So, yes, you already do. But let me just quickly do it because it is, a, it is it's staggering the amount of talent that's come through the academy. And I, I remember doing this in my head like a couple months ago and I just had no use for this information. So here it goes. So Mike Menon is in net. Dagba is right back. Sacco center back or 
I don't know, Zagadou, take your pick, whoever you think is better. With Kempembe, left back is Mendy, the Madrid Mendy, the talented Mendy. Three, uh, two CDMs, Gwenduzi, Rabio, your Cam could be in Kungu, uh, Diaby and Musa Diaby and Coleman on the wings, and then Dembele, the Lyon Dembele as striker. What do you think of that team? So, in terms of raw talent, the current team they have, right? When you look at Neymar, Messi, Mbappe, um, it looks better. But I think that team it goes back to what I was saying about having a winning culture and having players that maybe identify with the club and have somewhat of a meaning when they come into the field and they're representing their their academy and their 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 community and their city. There's a difference to it. So I think essentially the team you named with maybe two or three pieces from this current team, right? Some two or three good pieces of this current team. That is a team that can possibly win a Champions League because you're mixing up talent, culture, and you know grit, desire to win. This 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 PSG team, the, most of the players are there for the money, man, and that would only get you so far. You need to build a strong foundation. They don't have that now. Having the academy guys changes everything. So the the team you listed, and you add a couple, two or three guys of the current roster, the starting eleven, then some more pieces for the bench. It would have been a better team. I agree. I agree. I actually, I did a video on this exact topic and that was basically the lineup I had. And my point was basically that if they had met, of course, it's an alternate universe sort of idea that we're going with. So there would be all sorts of things. Well, maybe they wouldn't have thrived at PSG as they would have at Leverkusen or as they have at Leverkusen in Diaby's case, that kind of thing. But I think that, as you said, Filippo, it means something to them. And this is something that I also am sort of interested in with Luis Campos coming in because Let's say he does bring in these sort of unfancied signings and they sort of make a name for themselves at PSG. They'll have that affinity toward PSG as opposed to players who have already established their careers elsewhere. They already have made their name elsewhere and then they come to PSG, like you said, for the money and maybe to get a couple of quick trophies. But yeah, I think the uh, the PSG Academy is something that's sort of untapped by the club themselves. And if they start incorporating that a little bit more, they're going to be a very interesting team. And I think that sort of wraps up what we wanted to talk about today. But Filippo, you said you wanted to talk about Paulo Sousa. Go ahead, because he's a fascinating character, isn't he? Very quickly, so we can wrap up this, because we all got stuff to do here. But this is a funny story for everyone listening to the podcast. And because we're going to give you a funny story, we're going to try to do this maybe every end of podcast. We can give one funny soccer story, either in the professional level or of our lives. But for that, you guys got to drop a five-star review for us right now. But the story of Paulo Sosa is he was the, the coach or manager of Poland recently, right? Right before the UEFA World Cup playoffs. And he just abandoned the national team to go coach Flamengo in Brazil. So right now, if he stayed in Poland, he probably would have qualified to the World Cup as they did without him anyway. And he would have had a job and gone to the World Cup with Poland. So he chose to somewhat betray Poland. And, you know, it doesn't look good what he did. Poland's probably still pissed at him. And he went to Flamengo, and right now we're in what? We're in June of 2022. He started working early this season, around January or so. He got fired. <laughs> so so he's unemployed now. Um, he probably found out the pressure it is of, of playing, of coaching Flamengo. And, and now he could have been coaching Poland, getting ready for the World Cup. Instead, he is going to be unemployed. Well, hopefully he made enough money that he can enjoy Rio de Janeiro a little bit more, but... It was just a funny story that I thought because when that happened, when he betrayed and let go of Poland to go to Flamengo, I was talking to my dad about it because Flamengo wanted Josh Jesus at the time too. And I, me and my dad were like, this guy doesn't understand what he's getting himself into. Flamengo is the type of team that you lose three straight games and the, the fans want you dead. They want they want to kill you. It literally kill you or beat you up to the very least. And and that's essentially what happened. I mean, he didn't get beat up. Fortunately, he did not get beat up. But uh, the fans pressed and, and the, the team was not doing well. And he got fired. They fire very quickly. They have no patience. And when he got hired, me and my dad said he will get fired before the World Cup. It's a matter of when. And it happened a lot earlier than I expected, if I'm being completely honest. I can almost guarantee you, Filippo, that he looks to your boy Abel Ferreira, he looked to Jorge Jesus. He looked to the success that they had down there. And he was like, you know what? I'm a Portuguese manager. I can go and excel in this league. And he just, I Man, mean, he found out quick. Adrian, I'll tell you one is. thing. I'll tell you one thing. If you, if there's any professional coaches that listen to this podcast, which I don't think 
there is, or maybe there is, who knows. If you're ever going to take charge of a club like Flamengo, think about it twice. Just think about it twice. Because um, it's one of the clubs with the most unrealistic expectations. If they have a crap team, there's the, the fans are still expecting you to go beat Real Madrid. And if you don't beat them, they're going to hold you accountable. It's it's nuts. And and you lose one derby and they want the coach fired. And again, it's a, it's a club with over 30 million fans in Brazil. So we're, you can't hide from them. They're everywhere. So Paulo Sosa fell for that. If he had asked me at the time, we're not friends, so we don't know each other. I would have advised him not to go because Flamengo's insane. And he did, and and it went exactly as I expected. I I saw this, I saw this from a mile away. And maybe he could have been managing at a World Cup, but instead he got a little bit of a uh, a little bit of a vacation, I guess, a little southern yeah. vacation. So, oh, and his reputation is also kind of hurt in Europe, right? Because he abandoned Poland. Yeah, and he sort of bounced around various league, various clubs as a manager. He's one that had a lot of promise for a while, but it's just sort of not really panned out for him. And this is. I feel like the Poland job could have been how he sort of rebuilt his reputation a little bit. Um, but in leaving them and then going and getting sacked at Flamengo, that's just brutal. So a cautionary tale from Filippo from the Unsackable podcast. We'll do more of these every end of the podcast we, we, because we also have a lot of personal, I, at least I know I have a lot of personal funny stories in soccer, which we can always tell at the end. Don't forget to drop a review, please. And yes. Adrian or Josh, I'll let one of you guys close this one. Yes. One last thing. I'm going to let Josh close out because he rarely does so. But one last thing, you know, you said think twice about signing up with Flamengo. Think twice about leaving any reviews that are less than five stars, you know, because as we told you, we have a vast uh, legal team and we will come after you. So that's cautionary tale. But uh, yes, Josh, take us home, man. I will do my best impression of, uh, of Mendel Veth or Veth or, or, or Vivath. I'm not sure. But all right, guys, thank you guys so much for tuning in. Hopefully you guys enjoyed uh, that last little piece away from Paulo Sosa and getting sacked. Uh, yeah, don't, uh, go down, don't go down to Brazil unless you're Portuguese, which he is, and get fired anyway. So I don't really know where I'm going with that. But thank you guys so much. Be sure to leave a review. And until next time, cheers and bye-bye. <laughs>